This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, according to the Centers for Disease Control, one in four adults in the United States, that's 61 million people, live with a disability. Those include people with mobility, cognition, independent living, hearing, and vision disabilities. People living with disabilities have had to fight for their humanity and civil rights in the face of stigmatization, shame, bias, and discrimination. They've done so by challenging negative attitudes and stereotypes and rallying for political and institutional change. In the 1970s, they lobbied Congress and marched on Washington ultimately establishing protections for the first time with the Rehabilitation Act. A more comprehensive bill, the Americans with Disabilities Act, passed in 1990. That law was intended to prohibit discrimination on the basis of disability and ensure equal treatment and equal access to employment opportunities and public accommodations. In this episode of Speakers Forum, we hear from two activists who carry on efforts to empower people with disabilities, continuing the fight for recognition, inclusion, and equal rights. Shada Kafai is the author of Crip Kinship, The Disability Justice and Art Activism of Sins Invalid. She speaks here with author Leah Lakshmi Yepshna Samarsinga. Protective laws are one step in establishing wider freedoms, but they do not wipe away cultural assumptions and stereotypes. People with disabilities still face prejudice, physical barriers, and lack of affordable health care. They continue to fight to be seen as equals in societies that often other them. This program was presented on January 13th, 2022, by the Seattle Public Library and the Elliott Bay Book Company. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Elliott Bay's Karen Maeda Alman introduces the conversation. It's a particular honor tonight to host two luminaries whose words, performances, mentoring and community building and activism is crucial to, I would say, crucial to our survival. Shada Kafai is the author of Crip Kinship and is an assistant professor of gender and sexuality studies at California State Polytechnic University in Pomona. As a queer, mad, femme of color, she commits to enacting the many ways we can reclaim our body minds from intersecting systems of oppression. She was a 2020 inductee into the National Disability Mentoring Coalition's Susan Daniels Disability Mentoring Hall of Fame. 
You may have seen her TED Talk, The Language of Madness, or read her moving personal essay on Live Through This. She lives in Pomona, California with her wife, Amy. Leah Lakshmi Piepshna Samarsinga is a disabled, autistic, non-binary femme writer, performance artist, and cultural worker of Berger, Tamil, Sri Lankan, and Irish Roma Ascent. The author or co-editor of nine books, including The Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Intimate Violence in Activist Communities, and also the classic Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, and more recently, Beyond Survival, Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement, co-edited with Jaris Dixon. As a lead artist with Sins Invalid since 2009, um, they are a 2020 Disability Futures Fellow, a five-time finalist for Publishing Triangle Awards, and the 2020 winner of Lambda Literary Foundation's Jean Cordova Prize for Lesbian and Queer Nonfiction. And this is a major award given to a writer committed to nonfiction work that captures the depth and complexity of lesbian, queer life, culture, and or history. And tonight, they'll discuss Shada Kafai's book, Crip Kinship, The Disability Justice and Art Activism of Sins and Valid. And this was published just a few days ago by Arsenal Pulp Press. Crip Kinship is based on many years of scholarship, lived experiences, and documentation of the art activism of Sins and Valid, a San Francisco Bay Area based performance project and its radical imaginings of what disabled, queer, trans, and gender non-conforming body minds of color can do, how they can rewrite oppression, and how they can gift us with transformational lessons for our collective survival. Grounded in their disability justice framework, Crip Kinship investigates the revolutionary survival teachings that disabled queer of color community offers to all of our body minds. And Shada Kafai invites us to read this book with care and I hope you'll do so. And I, I mentioned it earlier, but I should, I think I'd like to say it again that Aliyah's also been a lead artist with Sins Invalid since 2009. Um, this is a book of tremendous insight, heart and revolutionary spirit Thank you both for speaking with us tonight. Hello. Um, Leah, should we do a quick like image description of us and space um, before we get started? Sure, I think so. Um, hi, I'm Leah. I use she and they pronouns. Um, I have kind of faded, this is like chocolate plum, I think. It's like purple, white, brown, curly hair on one side of my head. Um, I kind of have like light skin mixed race person in winter skin. So it's kind of ecru right now. Um, I'm in Seattle. If you're here, you know, we got four hours of sunlight maybe, but we actually didn't get any today. Um, I've got rose gold aviator glasses and these really amazing pom-pom earrings that are red and I'm wearing a white crop top. And I think that's it. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, my background is turquoise. Yeah. Shana, I love that you? chocolate plum just sounds delicious. Um, <laughs> hi, everyone. Um, I have short black like pixie hair. I'm wearing actual fig earrings today. Um, I have pink lipstick um, and a long 
um, black shirt and I'm sitting in my aunt and uncle's living room and they have like a silvery beige couch with like glittery silver pillows on it. Um, and I'm like, just ridiculously happy to be here. I, I needed this conversation that I know we're going to have today. Um, and it's so good to, to see your face. It's so good to see your face too. Where do you want to start? We could start, I mean, when I was thinking about today and I was thinking about um, world-wise, but, but my, my own world-wise, like what I needed, I was really thinking about um, rest and dreaming. Mm-hmm. So especially your writing about dreaming and, you know, queer crip dreaming. And so we could start there. Um, I could read a little excerpt or we can just talk about like, Hey, how did we first, when did we learn about sins invalid? Like maybe we do the crypt timeline <laughs> learn about sins invalid. What was like, how did it impact yeah. us? Um, maybe that's a good place for folks maybe um, yeah. to get grounded. Yeah. Totally. I would love to start there. I also, I'm so hungry Please. for your words. So if you, if you felt like you wanted to share an excerpt, maybe a little bit later on, I would love cool. that. And also we can just, you know, take it easy and see how it goes. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Um, do you want me to tell my sins and valid um, origin story or do you want to start? I would love to, because there's like an excerpt of it from like okay. a conversation we had in 2010 in the book. So Whoa. if you, Oh yeah. This is, um, for folks that are like, this is like a very long, slow project. So yeah, if you want to share, um, how did you start their work? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I I was going to be like, it's been 11 years. Yeah. It's a disabled writing process. It it, Uh, takes that long. long. Um, okay. So my sins invalid origin story was that I moved to Oakland, California in 2007 from Toronto to go to graduate school um, to get my MFA in creative writing. And also because it was like, I knew it was queer and trans people of color art central. Like it felt like queer paradise um, at the time. Um, And when I moved to the Bay, I had been pretty out about being disabled and mad in Toronto. And when I moved to Toronto and in, when I was, you know, in my early twenties, I was very visibly crazy and very sick and I, you know, I couldn't even hide it. And so even as I kind of went out of a crisis period that I was in, in my early twenties, you know, people knew my story. And then when I came to the Bay, I kind of went back into the closet for a while because I just, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, partly I, I left a place that was pretty inaccessible and pretty cold and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And all of a sudden I was in California and it was sunny and there was really cheap organic yeah. food and I quit smoking cigarettes and I kind of had a remission of some of my physical disability symptoms. And there was also a way that I just wanted to be, I wanted to be a cool kid. Like I wanted to be with all the other queer and trans folks of color. I knew none of whom identified as disabled. And, you know, it was just this very, decadent kind of time of like all of these working class queer and trans artists of color going to three shows a week and going to all these $3 dance clubs and things like that. And I never talked about, you know, I would kind of whisper it, but I I, I didn't talk about being disabled and I still was disabled, but at the time um, there were very few people still who I knew 
who were talking about disability who weren't white, right? Like I was aware that there was this history in the Bay. You know, people always talked about, oh, the East Bay, Berkeley, you know, it's the birthplace of the disability rights movement. But the people I knew for the most part who were telling those stories were white. And I was just like, that's not my world. I hardly talked to any white people. And, um, but then I remember hearing about Sins Invalid and I was like seeing their flyers around and they were really well designed. And I was like, I remember like picking one up and I kind of hid it in my backpack. And that was for their show at Brava Theater in 2008. And I bought myself a ticket. And by the way, I, at the time, um, myself and my collaborator, Cherry Gallette, we had been running Mangoes with Chili, which at the time was a pretty big queer and trans people of color arts collective. We had a tour every year. We were really embedded in performance art, but I didn't tell any of the people I knew from Mangoes that I was going to Sins. And when I went, I went by myself because Mm. I was kind of, I, I didn't say it out loud, but I was like, nobody can know I'm disabled. And then I went and I was like, I just was sitting there with my jaw open even before the show started because I was like, like for people who don't know, Brava Theater is like a 200, maybe 300 seater um, feminist, feminist of color theater in the San Francisco Mission District. It's beautiful. It's large. And I didn't know, I don't know what I expected, but I went there and I was like, God, the theater's full and it's full of disabled people. And most of them are not white and they're all flirting with each other. And I was just like, Oh my God. And I was like, this is just like, I've never seen anything like this. And I felt like crying and I felt myself breaking open. And, you know, I've told this story a lot. Like they, that show starts with, um, so yeah, the, you know, the curtains, the red velvet curtain opens and then um, Rodney and Celie are doing this like disabled flirtation race play BDSM on thing on stage and I'd never seen anything like it. And my jaws dropped again. And then Rami is, who's, you know, a Maori wheelchair dancer starts being slowly suspended in his chair, 40 feet off stage. Yes. And then there's this voiceover of Patty saying, is this safe? Are you safe? Are you sufficiently insulated from us, the disabled, the deaf, the deviant, or will you be tainted by our leaking needs? And I was like, ah! <laughs> um, so I was just like, I have never seen anything like this. And it's speaking to all of this stuff I've been moving around with my whole life that I have never heard anyone talk about. I've definitely never seen anyone do it in performance art. And I've definitely never seen anyone do it in performance art that, that is this high, like in terms of like technical caliber, like I, I, we're in a beautiful theater. It's accessible, disability centralized, you know, black and indigenous voices are on, like front and center on the stage And I basically, my brain exploded and I went, I was really transformed. And um, that was my entry point. And then a year later, um, you know, Sims, like a lot of organization, you know, performance organizations doesn't always do an open call for performers. And I know when I've talked to Patty and Leroy and other people who've been involved, they were like, well, you know, we're two disabled black people. And if we do an open call, we're going to get 10,000 submissions and we won't be able to sort them through. And we wanted to like work with people we knew a little bit and we knew we could work together. But then that year was one of the, maybe the only years where they did an open call for submissions. So I sent some stuff in and they were like, we want you to be in the show. And I was like, I just got so lucky. And um, yeah, maybe I'll stop there, but that was my entry point. I can say more about what it was like working with them if you like, but I will just say this, it changed my life. Like there's lots of details I could give, but when I started working with them as a performer the next year, I had been doing 
poetry and performance and arts teaching and writing teaching and curation for over 10 years at that point. And it was the first time that I'd ever been in a performance space where we all did an access check-in every time. And I just was like, uh, I'm fine. And then I saw, it was like the first time I saw more seasoned disabled artists saying without apology, this is what my access needs are. Because I was raised in a tradition of the show must go on. If you have an access need, well, tough titty for you, suck it up. You know, you either show up and perform or that's it. You're a flake. You know, we're not going to ask you again. Um, it was the first performance space where there was food, where Patty was like, oh, no, we're going to work with you to develop your piece. And I was like, oh, you mean I don't just have to show up and be perfect or you never invite me back? And they're like, no, we want to support you as a disabled artist of color. And I was like, these words are coming out of your mouth. I don't know what they mean. And yeah. where there was money in the budget from the beginning for ASL, for wheelchair access, for where there's so much work done to make sure the theater was accessible, where they built more and more access every year, you know, um, where, you know, to be honest, at first, we weren't like, there wasn't such great access about fragrances and chemicals. But then there was a lot of work to be like, how do we do this and be black and brown, majority black and brown disabled artists with a majority black and brown audience, where we have a lot of cultural stuff about not smelling bad and about how our hair products are very scented and not just being like, you have to do this, but being like, here's how we actually make it accessible for, for everybody. Here's a list of black and brown hair products and skin products that are unscented. Right. And, you know, and really coming at it from that racialized position. Anyway, I should stop talking, but basically it changed my life. And I went back to all the rest of my performance world and I was like, I want to do it this way. And then a lot of the abled, you know, QDPOC, queer and trans people of color performance community was kind of like, you know, and sorry, one last thing I'll say. Sorry, I'm famous. Please, no, don't apologize. I, just, I, you know, I really credit Sins with, um, I had like, what, like two or three books out, you know, by the time that I started working with Sins, but I didn't talk about disability in any of them. And, mm. you know, in the spoken word community I came up in, there was a real sense of like, Nobody gives a shit about this. It's a downer. Disability is depressing. Like there's no disabled artist community. No one wants to hear about that. That's just sad. And, you know, Sins actually created a space where I was like, I can write about my experiences of disability. And yeah, they can be, there can be sadness because there's oppression in them, but people are hungry for this. And it freed me up to start because it's like a chicken or the egg thing once I knew there was an audience and a space where I could write those stories and they would be longed for, I could start writing them. And it's funny because, I mean, Kieran was like, oh, Care Work's a classic. Care Work wouldn't exist without sense. None of my writing for the past, what's that been? Um, Yeah, 11 years would exist without sense. It literally changed the world. Okay, I'm going to shut up now. What was your entry point? I love how your description of your entry point was... Um, I it kind of felt like the outward, like going out there, seeing it, um, experiencing. And I did not get to go and see a performance until like, I think it was 2011. Yeah. So my entry point was more this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking for, I had a sense of understanding of my queerness and my disability at that point. 
and they were like, Hey, you have to write about something for your dissertation. And I was like, cool. Um, you know, people of color, queer people of color, trans queer people of color, but I want them to be disabled. And I was looking for performance projects. Um, and I wasn't finding any. And one of my friends who grew up in San Francisco was like, sins invalid. And I was like, who is sins invalid? <laughs> and so like my first entry point was like my bed in my like studio apartment, my computer, let me watch your, like I saw your performance online and there's like a few other um, really, really phenomenal excerpts. You of saw me masturbating on stage, like everybody yes, watched that piece on YouTube. Yep. Mm-hmm. For pain management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, what? This is amazing. Um, and I'm glad that you put their website in the chat. So folks, if you haven't been to their website yet, you can log on and you can see excerpts. Um, yeah. And so that was the first time that I was able to see kind of similar to you, this permissibility about talking about our body minds, um, talking about the needs that we might have without shame and coming from an immigrant background, like we don't talk about need in that same context. Um, coming from an academic background, we for sure don't talk about need. In fact, leave your body and mind like outside the classroom and like come into the classroom. Right. right? And so it felt like a very revolutionary way to talk about our body mind experiences. Um, and then after that, I was like, okay, um, you are an anxious person, but you are going to reach out and you're going to email (laughs) Patty Byrne. And just like, see what happens. And so, um, and then Patty connected me to you and connected me to Leroy and Celie Quest and other amazing folks. And so those like initial conversations then grew into, I have funding now I can go down there and visit. Um, And yeah, it was the most cross disability space, but also like, um, Patty introduced me to this really phenomenal term called crip centric liberated zones. <laughs> yeah. And when I heard that I was like, fabulous, like I want to live there. Like what is a crip centric liberated zone? And there's a whole chapter devoted to it because it's this really remarkable community built place, love place, mm-hmm. um, where, queer, transgender, non-conforming, disabled folks of color, where we can go to relearn ourselves outside of oppression. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so this is a love practice. Like, how do we make these spaces? And I mean, my first Sins Invalid was all, show was also at the Brava. Mm-hmm. And by the time I went, there was a room a quiet room Uh which my like anxiety mad brain was like all about um yes we all got the email that this is a scent free space you know there was a gender neutral restroom there were roomy seats for all bodies um I mean there were so many access points Mm -hmm. and it was a very humbling emotional experience to go somewhere and to realize that your needs were met, you know, like that's so simple, but it was such a mind blowing moment. Um, and then I was like, okay, so this, this project, um, 
was written about in one way for a dissertation because it had to be. And I was like, okay, so now we're going to really just reframe it and have, have y'all tell your story and have this be written for community. Um, But yeah, that was my origin story. Yeah. Wow. There's so much that's just popping in my brain off of what you said like that. um, The space where we relearn to love ourselves. That's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And what else? Mm -hmm. Um. There's something, you know, when you were describing going to the theater and it being that space of like multiple points of access, something that I'm also remembering was that, well, and it came up when you were like, it's so simple, but it's so not because how often do we get all of those forms of access? And I was like, right. And then the other thing was that, um, well, two things. One, what was mixed in with there is that like, it wasn't kind of sterile, off-white begrudging access like it was very sensual and it was very beautiful and it was a space of a lot of pleasure and decadence and I think that that's something that Sin's really modeled that's also you know like 15 years since the invention of the term disability justice when people were like oh what is DJ and there's some confusion about it I think that's one thing that sometimes gets lost is that you know disability justice is a revolutionary disabled, black and brown centered anti-capitalist practice. And it's also a practice that's about like rich disabled pleasure, right? Because so often as disabled people were told, well, either you can be, you know, like the normal people and be able to go sit with the big kids in the restaurant if you just pretend that you're not disabled and erase your disability. Or if you can't do that, the access you're going to get is like the ugly toilet seat, like the ugly grab bar, you know, it's going to be very minimal and you're, you're supposed to be grateful for that bare minimum that you get. And whereas with sins, it was like, no, 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 this is going to be a, you know, nutritionally accessible free buffet served to you on red velvet seats with a quiet room and ASL and, you know, access ushers and, you know, really good interpretation that is working around performance. Um, And it's just this feast. And it's also going to do things, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think that's like something I've seen a lot as a cultural worker is that anytime an oppressed group starts creating our own media, right? There's this idea that, oh, what people need are these like positive role models. So sometimes what Mm -hmm. comes out Dorothy Allison's written about this along with a lot of other people. Sometimes what get, what the expectation is, oh, we're going to tell these very simple positive stories that are like, yay. And what Sins did was actually like, no, we're going to do a lot of really complicated shit that's beautiful and gorgeous and also tell some really hard stories, but we need them to be told. And they're going to be told with beautiful lighting and acting and sound and interpretation. And there's also going to be stuff that pushes you, right? Um, Like I'm thinking about, I think it was around probably, I want to say 2011 um, when there was the show we did that we were really engaging with topics of eugenics um, where there's a whole theme, kind of this repeating theme talking about Carrie Bell, who was a young white Southern woman with Down syndrome who was forcibly sterilized. And the case Buck versus Bell in the U.S. Supreme Court um, is really notorious in disability world because it was a Supreme court case that, you know, was at the center of legalizing eugenics, eugenics and forced sterilization Mm -hmm. of disabled people. And in our show, Carrie Buck spoke and had a voice and was acted by Celie, who's a trans actor. And there was lots of stuff about 
Carrie having a right to a sexuality, a right to parent, you know, a right to make her own family. And that was a tough piece of performance art, but it touched on, I think everyone in the audience had their own relationship to being told, oh, you shouldn't have been born or you shouldn't reproduce or you don't have a right to be desired, no matter what our disability is. So that was there. And then it was mixed in with like, you know, God, I remember Patty was like, that was the year that me and E.T. Russian um, did our Crip Sex moments. Um, you know, we had like six different pieces that we worked on together. And Patty was like, okay, guys, it's a depressing show. So you guys got to bring the porn. And we were like, I was like, a lot of my stuff's really sad, you know? It's like, <laughs> but I mean, it, in any case, like we would have that intense, those intense pieces about eugenics and sterilization and the control of disabled women's bodies and sexualities, right? Mixed in with like ET stroking their leg amputations and talking about jerking off their friend in their truck or me talking about like going on a date with somebody and how we canceled more than we went out on the actual date, but it was really hot and, and things like that. And I think that there's in terms of the project of learning how to relove ourselves, I think that there's a way that, Along with the simple sensuality, there's a richness of disabled experience that we're not often allowed to have access to, where it's like it can be the hard things that we are telling on our own in our on our own terms. And also our stories of sexuality and pleasure and sensuality that we're telling on our own terms, because as disabled people, we experience all of those at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's an opening because when you you talked about like, oh, the happy stories, like those are the ones that we're supposed to be saying or hearing. Um, and I thought immediately of Stella Young's um, TED Talk on inspiration porn and how like there is a restriction of narrative. But if we're storytelling from the body mind outward, which is, I think, one of the things that Sins Invalid gifted me with or strategy they gifted me with. Um, and if we're storytelling from crip centric liberated zones from a place where we're taught, we can love and our bodies are worthy of love. Um, then yeah, space is created for, thank you for sharing that link. Spaces are created for all the stories. And I think in an interview early on, Leroy also shared with me that storytelling is activism mm-hmm. Um, and a very important part of that telling is us telling the entire range of stories Mm -hmm. of our body minds, right? Not just the ones that we're expected to tell that are rosy and happy. And, um, I'm thinking a lot from what you said again, also about how the act of telling the story as a disabled, mad, chronically ill person is incredibly, radical and sometimes I think it's simplified Mm -hmm. like there are so many other contexts in which me myself or others like our bodies are told and spoken about by other people never about ourselves so even yeah so like okay yes the physician talking about our bodies our psychiatrist talking about our bodies etc and so that like pivot of no actually Carrie's gonna speak um, Carrie has voice and agency, right. like all of those very intentional moments throughout. Mm-hmm. And when you were talking about like the juiciness of crip sex, um, I was, I was thinking about Nomi Lamb's um, most recent performance with the honey, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, just covering, covering their body on stage with honey and singing and, um, 
there is a new, beautiful, crypt out sexual pleasure universe that Sins and Violet invites us into mm. through all of these, these moments, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I absolutely, and I'm, I'm thinking about going back to what Leroy said about storytelling is political. Mm. You know, I think I've heard, I, probably a lot of people have heard that said by different people a lot, and sometimes it can come across as kind of like, sure, yeah, you tell yeah. your story. But I, I want to talk specifically, oh, thank you so much, Ryan, for posting that link um, of Nomi's Band. Um, I, I think an important point that I think about a lot in terms of like Sims's place as one of the creation places of disability justice. Um, I don't know. I haven't gotten this for a while, but I feel like for the, like, I don't know, like thinking back to like 2009 to like 2014, 15 ish, when I would be on the road, either kind of, I, I would be kind of, we, we would do these kind of um, Sins Light LIT shows because, you know, there were all of these colleges that started being like, come bring the show. And then they'd be really confused because Patty and Leroy would be like, unless you have like $20,000, you cannot bring the whole show because you need to pay for access. And, you know, bringing like nine to 12 disabled performers and entire, you know, sound and light crew to, you know, wherever, Burbank, wherever it, it's okay. Burbank wouldn't be, wouldn't be that expensive, but Maine, wherever it's expensive so we would do these shows that were great but kind of surreal where it would be like me and Leroy at Harvard with like a bunch of videos and we would just do monologues and we'd be like yeah this is kind of like the small version of the show um but sometimes people will be like wait so you do you're the one of the core organizations of disability justice and you're a performance art troupe and they would be like what and because they'd be expecting like aren't you guys registering people to vote or something like that's what a political organization is and something i heard patty i've heard patty say a lot um over the years and there's this one thing that she said that i quote a lot and i reference a lot where I think early on I was like, yeah, so how come performance art? And she just was like, you know, I have thrown a lot of workshops and I've done a lot of trainings for well-meaning people who want to, you know, give a shit about disability. And she's like, I could do a workshop and they'd all nod. Or yes. Elizabeth, you did see the mini show. I remember that. Um, she's like, we could do a workshop where everyone just nods their heads and forgets about it. Or she's like, or I can do a piece of performance art in three minutes that gets in their head and it fucks with all of their dreams and nightmares about disability and just, you know, devastates them basically and changes them at the level where stories enter into us, which is the soul, which is the subconscious. And I think that that's true for both abled, you know, viewers and also for disabled viewers who would be like, whoa, holy shit. I didn't know. I've never, I didn't know you could put a story like that on stage and that's mine. And I'm, it's yeah. turning me inside out. That, that's what happened with me. And so I think sometimes when people are like, what is disability justice? I mean, there's a million ways to answer that question. But I think that there's a reason why. And in some ways, this is this is one of the things that I think really differentiates us from the disability rights movement is that um, storytelling and cultural work and performance art and poetry is so central to our work. And I think that even when I see waves of DJ now where there's like so much disability justice on Instagram, you know, there's so many like cute pictures and like images and like, or even I'm thinking about um, Disabled in Here, which is this disabled um, queer and trans people of color um, clip art project that came out of Portland where there's just like different photographs and, and comic images of like really sweet disabled queer and trans black and brown people like getting a coffee, hanging out, like sleeping together, where I'm like, 
that that's a possibility model for how you can live a disabled, joyful life. And I think that's a lot of the work we're doing and that like what you said about like a space to liberate ourselves through learning how to love ourselves in a different way. And that's where the creative self gets in. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that the disability rights movement didn't have cultural work because it absolutely did. But I just do see a distinction, especially in terms of when I entered into SINS's work and disability justice work, where there was more of an emphasis coming from disability rights as I experienced it on policy and laws and like, let's do this kind of civil rights framework versus the more community-based cultural workspace that I saw SINS and a lot of other disability justice folks doing. And I think that it's because as disabled black and brown queer and trans folks often were like, well, fuck, we don't trust the law and we don't trust that. Like the laws, it's harm reduction, but it's not going to save us. Like us reaching to each other is going to be a lot of what saves us. And I've seen that storytelling, especially like one of the biggest wins I see coming out of disability justice cultural work with sins absolutely at the center of it is in the past 11 years, I just see so many more especially younger, but not just younger, black and brown folks have so much less hesitancy in identifying as disabled. Whereas I felt like 10 years ago, I knew all these people who were like, oh, I wouldn't call myself that. I mean, oh, but now I see especially a lot of younger people being like, yep, I'm disabled. I'm radical. I look hot. Let's go. Like, let's fuck shit up. Whereas I think my generation or older, there was much more like, oh God, I can't afford to be out about my shit. And when I think about being out about my shit, the organized spaces I see are so white and straight that I don't feel safe there. So, you know, what's, what's the point? Hi, Sarah. Um, Yeah. I mean, when you said, what is disability justice? So that was like the opening question of this whole thing. And it's like disability justice is need. And it's very much like, I want to be clear that I, I would not have, the space and the ability to do what I do without disability rights and the mainstream work that disability rights did. And at the same time, because so many people were left out, the main word that pops to my mind for what is disability justice, it's, it's created out of need. And I think about like, in thinking about disability justice and sins invalid, I'm thinking of this beautiful lunch that Patty and Leroy had together um, at this cultural center called La Pena in San Francisco, where they were like, we're, we're beautiful, juicy, hot, amazing humans. And we have amazing thoughts and we create amazing work. We need to have a place for this. Like, I think that's exactly maybe word for word what Patty said, like, we need a place. Um, let's make our own place. And so I, I feel like need facilitates so much of the cultural work. And then the spaces that are created from it, it's all this beauty that comes from that seedling of need and also that seedling of kinship mm-hmm. and doing it in community. And yeah, like I, I feel you, I have so many more students now who yeah. are open about not just their disabilities, but about their access needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's our beginning of the semester ritual. Um, I will tell you what my access needs are. Um, and then everybody else is invited to share as we go on because it's just, if, if there's one thing that I'm noticing open, mm-hmm. it's that claiming of identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With well, and that was something that we always said where we were like, 
I mean, at least with me, I was like, I need the abled and the normals to care <laughs> because there's a lot of us, but I'm just like, I mean, period. And I was like, I'm sick of the disabled people being the only ones to do the disabled work, right? Like we could use some help, you know? Also, I was like, I, I'm really pragmatic. I want us all not to die. And we could really just really win a lot faster if y'all would get on board. So um, it's been cool seeing some movement that way. I remember a story that... Stacey Park Milburn said um, when it was like a year or two into Trump and it was one of his attempts to destroy DACA. And there was this rally in downtown Oakland and there were these very young undocumented organizers who right at the beginning, I mean, you know, it made us both cry because we were like, we had 10 years of trying to get non-disabled organizers to do stuff like this. And we'd be, we, it took a lot of work and often they were just like, nope, forget it. But they were like, yep, yeah, we've got chairs in the front. And when the march starts, we're going to move at the pace of everyone who's in a chair, everyone who walks slowly, everyone who has kids, they're going to lead the march. And I was like, I'm crying. And then also there was a moment where they were like, great. So we're going to hold the sage aloft, but we're not going to light it because we know that some people have asthma. And I was like, this is such a huge moment that we've been working towards because as you know, black, brown, indigenous people, we know that different herbs and medicines have been so important to our political and cultural practices. And often we were the disabled, black, brown, indigenous people who were like, hey, and some of these, the way we're doing them, make the space inaccessible for some of us. So can we have the medicines present, but do it in an accessible way? And these 16-year-olds were just right there. And they were like, if the revolution is not accessible, it's not the revolution. And Stacey was texting me like, are you seeing this? And I was like, yeah. oh, it kind of worked. We all still might die, but okay, great. Like the organizing paid off. And um, that's really hope-giving for me. And ah, uh, yeah, I'm seeing you. Hi. Nice to see you. Sorry, I'm waving at the chat because I'm <laughs> Shit, I'm just realizing we have 12 minutes left till we go to wrap because this is just- No. Yeah, it's it's 6.48. Oh my goodness. I mean, yeah, I, I want to be generous and like open with the time and like invite folks to ask questions if they have any, but oh my goodness, that went by so fast. Yeah, so if people have been, you know, waiting with bated breath to ask us something about sins or about anything, please do. <sighs> You know, in our, like, um, as people are typing in our email back and forth, um, one of the things that you asked me about, um, we're just like, what are our disability justice dreams? Um, and we do have a question and that's kind of a big one. Can I just say it real quick? Oh, please. Yes. Y'all so are. Nafisa is saying, how would you go about creating a space like something invalid? Sorry, I didn't want to ju- cut you off, but I was like, that might take a lot of the 10 minutes. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, I I will say a few things. And then um, the first thing that popped into my head was. um, Oh, and and Nafisa is saying, but please should have finished your thought. Okay. Um, I was just going to say that um, the first text that came to mind that can be used as guidepost um, and, you know, loving communally created instruction manual of sorts is Sins and Ballads Disability Justice Primer. Um, and Leah, if I anticipate, I think you're going to type the link in the chat. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, and it's this phenomenal second edition book. Um, and so from the, the stage of first to second edition, um, Sins and Ballad reached out to yeah. community organizers, cultural workers and said, hey, like, what are the conversations that we need to have that maybe we missed in the first text? But it's the first primer that not only talks about 
what is disability justice. It gives a history of it, a timeline of disability justice, and then says, okay, and now what do we do with these principles? Like, how can they work in organizing spaces? Um, so that's the first thing that popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I just, I found it and I put the link to the book in the chat. And I would just say, um, I think that's a great place to start. Um, there's also, I'm thinking about Carolyn Lazard, who's an amazing queer Haitian disabled artist. Um, they have, a, I think it's just called Accessibility in the Arts. Um, Shada, if you want to look it up while I'm talking, we could put it in. Yes, I'm, I'm on it. Yes. <laughs> um, I think that, Lisa, when I heard that question, my first thought was start where you are. You know, I think that this is one thing that's so beautiful that I see about disability arts just blossoming over the last 12 years is that like, we just keep, it doesn't have to look any one way. Like I think that access is central, but I think that every community, you know, every space that you're part of, you know, every community that you're a part of, you're going to know what the needs are. Right. So I feel like, you know, it doesn't have to look exactly like sins and sins, you know, has changed over time where, you know, it went from like, the first show that I think was at like the LGBT community center to like a bigger theatrical show to the last performance they did, which because of COVID pivoted towards being all on film and video. Right. And they actually have, um, Oh God, I forget if it's a blog post or a a video about the making of that show, but it's called loving with three hearts. And it talks about like how they had cameras in three different cities perform like filming performers and splicing it together. So those are some ways, but I just think about, um, you know, it makes me think about like disabled folks I know, like E.T. years ago in Seattle started a thing called Crip Your Hangout, where they just were like, yeah, there's no organized disabled space that I know of in Seattle. So I just want disabled people to hang out once a month. And I think about people who do disabled reading series on Zoom, or I think about people who, you know, start kind of a thing where they like make kind of like a, oh God, like... I don't know how to describe it, but like, you know, like write one page on a journal and then mail it to the next person and they write a next, a next thing and they, and it gets passed around. I just think that like, I guess that the too long didn't read is like really think about what your dreams and desires are and what your community's dreams and desires are. Mm -hmm. And also don't be afraid to ask and start where you are and know that it can be a smaller thing than a lavish once a year performance. Like it can be a reading series. It can be a reading circle. It can be like getting together and making disabled art. Um, I work with the Disability and Intersectionality Summit, and I just um, did the tech, which is not my strong suit, last week for um, this workshop we did that was a bunch of disabled zine makers out of Hamilton, Ontario, zine team, and they were talking about making a zine as disabled and deaf and sick and mad students during COVID and there are different disabled art practices where they were like, yeah, we were like, it can be sloppy, it can be messy, it can be quick, it can be not permanent, and I was like, I think that there's something to be said for making lavishly beautiful, well-produced disabled art. And I also think there was something I loved where they were like, we just do these quick writing hangouts together. And it's wonderful because if we, if the stakes are too high, we're all like young and kind of freaked out and in COVID and disabled. And we wanted to start creating the space. So um, yeah, all of those things, all of those things. And yes. And thank you so much for putting the links in the chat, Shaiba. Of course. And Nafisa, thank you for the question. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have six minutes. Oh, wait, are there other questions? Yes. Um, Jeanette says, hi, Shida. What would you say is your favorite chapter of the book and why? Hello, Jeanette. Um, 
You know, I think one of my favorite chapters is the last one, um, and it's called Manifesting Our Collective Futures. And I like this as, as one of my favorite chapters because it thinks about Sins and Ballad's work and the call of dream making and um, manifesting crib futures that they're tasking us with and imagines what things would look like continuing that work. And I remember in 2020, um, Movement Generation did a, an online series of like, we're imagining that it's the year 2050. Um, and the, the webinar link should still be on YouTube. Um, but let's imagine it's 2050. And then they did check-ins with different um, social justice workers. And Patty was on from 2050 as a disability justice activist and was kind of inviting us to dream of a future where um, there were chairs on every corner. There were um, access teams on every corner. There was water and snacks on every corner. And it was just this like really um, exciting possibility dreaming moment. And I was like, okay, so this is this is how I want to end because I want all the amazing people that are going to read this to manifest their own uh, crypt dreams and kinship networks. And it's kind of an invitation to everybody else too to kind of write the next, the next version of this, the next book and the next. Yeah. Thanks for that question. Okay. I'm trying to find the link for that and I'm finding different things, but um I can go ahead and read it if you want to um, read the next question. Is there a next question? Let me see. Um, yes, there is. Okay, so there's two questions. Um, one is, I'm disabled and I'm working with a Spoonie friend to try and organize a network of care pods in Seattle. Oh, hi. Inspired by care work. Thank you. We're both having a, been having a hard time finding other Spoonies, especially since a lot of us are basically hunkered down at home. Any suggestions for how to spread the word? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know I'm old, but I'm still on Facebook. I see a lot of activity on Seattle Spoonie Network or Seattle Spoonie something. There's like a ton of people there all the time being like, I have to go to the hospital. I need drugs. I'm stressed out. I'm, you know, just like voicing access needs. So um, I think that's one place I think like, I don't know. Like, I really think about using hashtags. I think about also, I think also about like, even if it's just a couple of you, you know, that can be good because you start where you are and you don't overtax yourself. Because I know some people who are disabled who've been trying to set up care networks. We're honestly like, I know folks in Oakland who are doing it, but they were like, fuck, we got a million asks and you know we're all disabled and we actually felt really swamped and like oh my god we're leaving people out to dry but like hundreds of people wrote us and we actually needed support to like be able to answer all the calls for support that we were given oh thank you so much Sisha I think that's it um yeah and so I think like sometimes it can be like let's start with a small group of people and then maybe those people can then be like oh I have one friend I'll ask them if they want to be invited and things like that I also really think like it doesn't have to, I think it's really important for it to center disabled people. And, and one method of doing that kind of care web can be that everyone's disabled, but also if you know able-bodied and neurotypical people who want to help out and who can like take direction, they're great. You know, like, like feel free to like have them reach out, I guess is my short version of it. Um, yeah. And then Shada, I don't know if you want to, it's just that there's two questions that are coming up. 
and we have two minutes left, but um, should I, can I just read these and we can please. Okay. So yeah. Jess, hi Jess is saying you both are wonderful. I might be too emo ish for an artistic question, but I'll be buying Crip Kinship um, tomorrow. But can I ask how to re-listen to this conversation? Great. So is it going to be posted on YouTube? I think. I believe it's going to be posted on YouTube and um, this along with all of the other um, amazing conversations um, are going to be posted on my website. Let me drop the link in here. Cool. And comment. Thank you so much for posting those. There's comment just posted some links in the chat Um, to an essay. I actually wrote about how disabled mutual aid is different than able mutual aid. That was on disability visibility project. Sweet. Um. So, yeah. And then Alex Dolores Salerno says, curious about access to CRIP membership, mentorship. I was so lucky to feel that I could identify as disabled so easily thanks to the CRIP mentors in my life. And I'm so grateful to them. And at the same time, I feel very isolated. How can we support CRIP mentorship or passing along of CRIP knowledge and wisdom? Thank you so much for your talk. Thank you so much for asking those questions. Um, Shada, do you want to speak to that? Yes. So I'm pulling up the link right now. Uh, So one of the first places I would recommend going to um, is the National Disability Mentoring Coalition. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I put that in the chat. Um, One, because it, it puts you in context with a whole bunch of other folks from um, across the US um, and they have a network tab. Um, And so you can kind of connect with folks that way, but kind of going back to this idea that Leah, you were mentioning of starting where you are and growing outward, um, kind of reaching back to like the folks that you do know and starting, is there one in Canada? Let me see. I don't know if there is, but if you go to the contact for that link, they may be able to connect you um, because I know there are a lot of different organizations um, and disability resource centers in in different Canadian universities that I've been in touch with lately. Yeah. And Shelly, I I would just say, um, check, I don't know where you are in Canada, but um, I would Google Disability Justice Network of Ontario. Um, They're based in Hamilton. And it's Ontario, but I know that they are led by like young, disabled um, people of color and they're doing a lot. So they might have something. And if not, they might know where something is. Yes. DJNO.ca. Yes. I'm also thinking about Dawn, which is disabled. I'm forgetting the acronym, but it's a disabled women's network. And I know that there's some branches in Montreal and Vancouver that have been doing things. And also, I feel like I interrupted you. But I want to say like it might be one of those things where disability justice is often what we invent. So I think that like starting a mentorship program can look a lot of different ways and be a thing, you know, even if it's just like, Hey, like let's do group mentorship with each other, you know, like, right. Like let's start having like a peer support network. We meet once a month and talk about how it's going, but Shada, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, just that I do something similar to that on Instagram folks. And so like, yeah, going, going digital, I think is really good for just spoons capacity and a way to stay connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one thing, I, I don't know if she has something that's easy to find, but Kai Cheng Tom, um, K-A-I-C-H-E-N-G-T-H-O-M, who's a Chinese-Canadian trans writer and organizer, um, she had some really interesting writing a while ago about mentorship 
and the complexities of it. Cause she's, she was writing about being a young trans Asian woman. And she was like, yeah, I was pushed into being a mentor to other people when I was 22. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't know about like boundaries or having limits or like what was and wasn't appropriate. And I was just kind of feeling my way along. And so if she has stuff that's findable, I remember reading her writing stuff that really spoke to me because I think a lot of us are, you know, I mean, speaking to what I said about, you know, oh, we just have to make it. That's true. And also sometimes we're in these small communities trying to build the plane as we fly it. And sometimes there can be a lot of, you know, pretty messy things that come up where there's a huge amount of need. And then we're like, fuck, I don't have all the answers. What about when I fuck up? Like, where where are the limits? If I'm 23 and mentoring 21 year olds, can I ever date anyone in my community again? And yeah, that's that's how the, her name spelled. And um, yeah, it probably was her web presence. So I don't, I don't have an article about that, but I think that's a thing, that is something that's important for us to think about um, as we continue to think about being disabled people who are both learning from each other and also passing that knowledge on in terms of looking at um, just power dynamics and things like that and feeling our way through. Yeah. And I threw in the chat um, the Kate Davidson Fellowship. Kate Davidson was an incredible Black, disabled, trans organizer and creator in Los Angeles who passed um, some years ago. And one of the last things that Stacey Park Milburn um, did before she passed, um, along with a bunch of other people, um, Andrea Levant and other people, was that when Crip Camp came out, the film that was on Netflix last year, um, Andrea and Stacey were like, great, it's a great movie, it's pretty white. Take some of this money, we're going to create disabled BIPOC spaces. And they created, they really pushed to create this Kate Davidson Fellowship that ran for one year that was linking emerging and rising um, disabled, mostly BIPOC organizers and artists with mentors. And I will say as a mentor, um, you know, working with, the, the program was great. Everyone who was involved was great. Adobe was a little weird. You know, it was just one of those interesting things about like what happens when you take corporate money. Um, but it was an interesting model for me of like, wow, I haven't experienced this before. Like this as an organized, disabled, intergenerational mentorship program. Um, and it might be worth kind of like looking at some of their online stuff as one example of a public program that was out there. Yeah. And I know you and I also put our, our um, online handles in the chat. So y'all reach out. Yeah. At least I'm going to make myself available. I don't want to like, you know, just... No, no, it's great. I, I, I think I still have an auto reply that says, hi, I'll write you back. It might take a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. I think we're coming to the end of our time together. We are. Yeah, thank I'm... you. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Shida. And thank you, Lori, so much for your interpretation. And thank yes. you to the person who's doing the captioning whose name I don't know. And Stisha, I think you're back from the library to say some things. I am. Thank you both so much. And thanks to Emily, our captioner, and Lori, our ASL interpreter. Thank you both for this amazing conversation. It was just such a privilege to be able to to listen and learn and um, and we will be um, recording the, we are recording the program and it will be captioned for accessibility and then posted on SPL's YouTube page. And then we'll also link to the transcript because there's all these amazing resources in the chat and we'll, um, we'll make sure that those resources are included as well so that folks will be able to reference those after the event. Um, 
I also wanted to let folks know that Elliot Bay Books has copies of both Shada's and Leah's books, and you can find books at their website, elliotbaybook.com. I've also been posting the links, direct links to both authors' work um, in the chat. And of course, you can find the books at the library as well. We have um, both authors' books at SPL as well. We're grateful to everybody who made tonight's program possible. Thank you to our program partners, Elliott Bay Books and Sins Invalid, and to our sponsors, the Gary and Connie Kunis Foundation, the Seattle Times, and the Seattle Public Library Foundation. And of course, thank you so much to all of you for joining us tonight, asking great questions and being here. Thank you, and we will see you next time. Good night, everybody. Thank you all, thank you all of you for attending, and thank you, Sharda. This is so much fun. This was amazing. Can we take a quick selfie before we go? Yes. <laughs> and everybody who attended who's like, I want to start my own group. I am so excited for a near future. Yes. Five million. Yes. You know, Sins, Sins and Val, the next generation disability justice art groups out there. Like this just makes my heart feel so full. Cheda Kafai is the author of Crip Kinship, the disability justice and art activism of Sins Invalid. This program was presented on January 13th, 2022 by the Seattle Public Library and the L.A. Bay Book Company. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.